Welcome to the Yeshiva Shomayla. This is David Lichtenstein. This week we'll be speaking about a sad topic, Ponzi schemes, the people who lose their money in Ponzi schemes, syndicators who lose their clients' money through bad investments, often making hyperinflated claims as to the returns they'll get and as to the experience and knowledge that they have. We'll be speaking to Rabbi Shmuel first, the great Paisik from Chicago. He'll be speaking about, is there an Isser of Lashon Hara? Is there an Isser of Masira? He'll be speaking about what happens if the Ponzi schemer or syndicator has a family. Can you bring them to justice, even though it may do harm to their families? Shaduchim. Shukhanach knew, knew about Shiduchim, Shukhanach knew about all these things. And so after PKN says Mazak Zerabim, there's no way they're going to, uh, going to, uh, going to the, uh, to the authorities. We'll be speaking about the Dine Mominus part mostly, Rabbi Zalman Graus. Can you collect the money? Should you be investing? He'll be speaking through as a Dayan, one of the most famous boyrim in the world. And let's have sat through hundreds of entires. He'll be speaking about what happens to the families very often of people who invest with private individuals. Rabbonim should have been done something else. They should have been a long time ago, long time ago, to put big, 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 big moidores on all the streets and all the newspapers. Stop investing. Stop investing. This is nonsense investing. You cannot invest by other people. It doesn't work. No, never it works. Invest by other person. Person is doing wrong. Whoever takes money is don't give him money. And it's a mitzvah fasten. Don't give anybody. He's Jewish. He's a Shemesh Shabbos. He's a Tzaddik. Yes, but don't give him money. But it's no different. Anybody what gives money is stupid and he's wrong. We'll have from New York, the famous criminal attorney Benjamin Braffman. What penalty does the government place on those who scheme or make misrepresentations? And the sentences in these cases can be very high. Uh, a sentence that is sometimes much higher than uh, a sentence, for example, in, in a violent crime case. Sentences can be uh, uh, 20 years in a fraud case. From Lakewood, we'll have Rabbi Ari Marburger. Rabbi Ari Marburger is going to sketch out a path to trying to reclaim the money from the Ponzi schemers and from those who got early repayment. What happens, some people got all their money back and they made a big profit that was funded by later. Who, who, get, who pays that? Can you claim, make a claim both to the Ponzi schemer as well as to the people who actually have that money now, who have your money, right? And he's going to disagree with Rabbi Grouse. Rabbi Grouse takes the position as how logically it's impossible to collect from those people. Rabbi Ari, Ari Marb will try to frame out an argument that you can collect from them. And then we'll have Ellie Fried, the investment guy. He'll also just speak about making private investments this should make for a really fascinating program. I wanted to comment on something that's been in the news the last two weeks. The Titanic and the submersible, the Titan. This got the whole America, the whole world was sitting on their edge of their seats. I was thinking about it from a halachic point of view. These people who went down and risked their lives on an unworthy craft that had many warnings. So my question is, was there even any halachic reason to save them? The Minchas Chinuch talks about somebody who places himself in danger 
negligently, and he makes takes the position that you would not have any chiyuv, there would be no obligation to even attempt to save them, even if you can. And his argument is, because where do we learn the din of saving somebody? The Gemara says, you learn it from Hashava Saveda. If you have to return somebody's cow, you certainly have to return their health and their physical body. So says, what happens if a person leaves their cow in Rosh Hashanah? He's negligent taking care of his financial assets. So the Gemara says, Aveda midas, if you're negligent, there's no din of Hashavah Saveda. And therefore the Menchaz Chenach says, somebody who's negligent with their physical body, there's no din to save them. And by the way, the Argadol, many Gedalim agree with the Menchaz Chenach. Ramayisha Feinstein famously argues, and he, and he brings a raya from the fact, he says, your body, he says, it makes, he, he differentiates. He says, if you put your cow, there's no din of Hashavah because you can elect to Basically, be miyayish or give up or be mafka your cow. He says your body doesn't belong to you. So he says the fact that you decided to be have aveda midas on your guf wouldn't matter. And the chinuch disagrees. The minchas chinuch, the minchas chinuch holds. If it's not your body, he says, why if I'm chayvul you, do I have to pay you? The fact that you don't have a right to do it means you don't have a right to give up your body because the rabbi Shulman trusted it to you, but it's certainly yours. And since it's certainly since it's yours, you would have it would have a din of aveda midas, and there would be no achiyuv to save. So halachically, there's a good chance, according to many great achrayim, my shofarim seem disagreeing, that there would no din hatzala. Now let's talk about from a moral point of view. If you've anybody who's read the news in the last year keeps reading about migrants who are trying to escape from d- dictatorships, places like Venezuela and Cuba, now would be Russia or Ukraine, and they're stuck in ships, and they put 100 or 200 people on these tiny little ships, and when the ships sink, there's pictures of the Greek Navy, um, um, basically when they're trying to climb onto their boats, pushing them back into the water. So when a migrant is trying to struggle, save his life, the, nobody's, all the governments in the world aren't interested. When five wealthy, glamour-seeking individuals going down to a ship, which has many books have been written and movies have been made about it, then they put themselves in danger. All the navies of the world come running with their searches, tens of millions of dollars. So I was repulsed by this, both from a moral point of view and from a halachic point of view. I questioned the value of should this effort even be being made from a, a halachic point of view. Before we go to our guests, I'd like to say a vart, not really on this parsha, it's on the parsha before, on the next few parsha, on the later parshas. When Moshe Rabbeinu tries to enter Eretz Yisrael, the end of his journey, the promised land, he's been battling Pare and Kal Yisrael, Abayim Shana with all their pride. Why, finally, just let me finish. What does Rabbeinu Shalom say? Ravlach al Toysev Daber. Stop speaking Ravlach. It's enough. You've had enough. You wrote the Torah. You're Moshe Rabbeinu. You took them out of Mitzrayim. You took them. To, you got so much. Ravlach al Toysev. Chazal say something very interesting. He said he used the Lushin Ravlach because that's the same Lushin Moshe used to the Bnei Kairach. Ravlach and Bnei Levi. Enough. So it seems like, what is this, some type of a cutesy word? He said Ravlach. Rabbeinu Shalom said Ravlach back. Like, is this except some type of a linguistic exercise over here? Let me suggest an answer. What did Kairach wanted to be? He wanted to be the Rebbe. He wanted to be Maish Rabbeinu. He wanted to be the Malamed Tayra Lama Yisrael. Didn't you ever want to be a Rebbe, a Rosh Hashiva, a Magid Shir? But you couldn't. You didn't have the circumstances. You weren't born into the right family. 
Today, unfortunately, that seems to go ben ben. You, it wasn't always like that. For many, many, many generations it wasn't. Today, it's mostly in the family. You weren't, maybe you couldn't afford the buildings. Maybe you weren't smart enough. You, you weren't such a big Balkishrin. Maybe you had to support your family. There's so many different reasons why you couldn't be a Rebbe. You couldn't be a Rashiva. You couldn't be a Magachir. Whatever you, your dream of what you wanted to be. Is that a bad thing when you say, I really wanted to? That's what Kaira said. It's true, I was wealthy, I was this, I, I, I was a B'nai Levi, I wanted to be the Rebbe. And you know, that's not such a bad taina. In fact, famously, it's brought from, you know, from the Mekubalim, that Tzadik Katomar Yifrach, a Tzadik, very, very slowly grows till he reaches the heavens, right? So Tzadik, the last letter is Kuf, Katomar is Resh, and Yifrach is Ches, Saif Tavis Kairach. So at the end of time, Kairach will, will one day he will be that Rebbe, he will be what he aspired to be. The, the Lublina, the Holy Lublina used to say, the Helega Zayda Kairach, my Holy Zayda Kairach. There was something about him. He went about it in a really, you know, you want to be the Rebbe, you want to be, there's ways to go about it by being Kaifer and Tairas Maisha. And he was Kaifer and Tairas Maisha, and the proof is Ramam writes it that way, but it says the Bnei, Gemara says that they stand, his sons stand on the Pischei Shel Gehenim, and the Tshuva they said is, Moish Emes Veterase Emes, not like their father who was Kaifer and Teres Moshe. But where did he, where did it stand from? Where did it all begin? It began with, he wanted to be a rabbi. In his 80s, he didn't give up. And you know what? Moshe says Ravlach, and Moshe's criticized for it. When somebody has a dream, when somebody has aspirations, whatever they may be, holy, he wanted to be a Talmud Chacham. I aspire to be a Talmud Chacham too. I'm not 80 yet, but I aspire. You never shut the person down and say, nah, it's not for you. Too much, too much. You want to be holy. It's no, 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 no. And because of that, what does Rabbi Nishom say to Moshe? You said to his dreams, Ravlach, Ravlach Emre Levi. The Rabbi Nishom says to him, Ravlach, on your spiritual dreams, on your Ruchnius Tasagas to enter into Israel. What does he say? Ravlach al Chazal. He said Ravlachem to his spiritual, to his Ruchnius Tasagas. And he said Ravlach al And what's the meh? And by the way, when I was a, ch- a, ch- a young boy, a child, my father took me, I don't remember what the occasion was, I think it was Sukkot. To the sukkah, there was a Labavitcher Goyen. His name was Rav Pekarsky. He was Rashivin Tarvadas. He used to give smicha. He used to be one of the, the uh, you know, he used to do the faharas for smicha. And I remember he said, the Tyra was just a beautiful Tyra. I think I've said it before. But he says, the Gemara in Yuma, I don't have a Gemara in front of me, but I think it's around Afches and Afyiralaf and a few places. The Gemara says, in the Bayez Sheni, they used to sell the Kahuna Gedayla to the highest bidder. 300 Samad Gehanim Gedalim were, were in the second bias, and 300 also, like 15 or 18 or 12, I forgot the number, they used to pull them out. They would go in every year, new, the new one would go in Lafnail of them to be Makra of the Ktiris. He would die because he wasn't right, and they'd pull them out with a string, and they'd sell it again, and the next guy would do it. So the question is, like, what were these Gehanim Gedalim thinking? I mean, 250 guys before you went bankrupt, would you invest? 300 before you died, would you, would you go in? Interesting question. And Rafakarsky asked another question. He says, and there's a lishka, there's a chamber in the, in the base Hamigdash, an antechamber called the lishka's parhedrin, the lishka for those who bought the, the kahuna, who paid the money for the kahuna. He says, you name a, 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 a lishka in the base Hamigdash for these people? Rafakarsky said, but just think of these people. They knew they were going to die, but to be able to be the one who begs on behalf of Klal Yisrael, one time in their life, just one time, it was worth paying all that money, and it was worth paying the price of dying too. So he said, somebody who's willing to give up his life 
and his money to be able to one time to be the Shliach Tzibur for Klal Yisrael, such a person, you could name a Lishka in the Beis HaMegdash for. So what's the takeaway to us? If you, if you have a child who has some dream, and it seems absurd, he wants to be Rebbe Vega, he wants to be, wants to be the Shach, he wants to be Rav Shach. If you have a dream, you want to finish Shas, you want to be a Talmud Chacham one day, and somebody says, Rav, or you tell that person, Rav, no, it's a terrible Avera. We don't shut somebody down. Any, the Jews have are infinite. Everybody is a Tzalem Aleikim. And it says on Kav Mad Mus The same thing, a person who's a Tzalem Aleikim, we, we never shut down. But Klal Yisrael, the biggest dream, the craziest dream, he wants to be Maishar Rabbeinu, he went at them out the wrong way. You don't attack Maishar Rabbeinu, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't make Otsanas. But the dream was a holy dream. So what do I say? Keep on dreaming. Let's go to our riddle of the week. Here's the first Shiloh. It says in the Parsha this week that Kval Yisrael, this is Perik Chafalov, had a Muhammad with Amalek. They disguised themselves as Kenanim. And Vayidar Yisrael Neder. They made a Neder Lashem. They said, if you give us over the Amalekim? Hecheramti Esareim. Sarashi says, I'll give all the loot. We'll go to the Beis HaMikdash, L'Gavaya. So the question is, Bishlam Alayt Rishayinim Ehulern. The Targum, or the, 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 the Tanoim, the Targum Unkwas. And the Targum Ernesim Biel says, that Viv... I'll destroy. But like Rashi in the Rajbam that says that I'll, I won't not I'll destroy it, I'll give it to, to the Beis HaMikdash. But the mitzvah of Mechiyah Samalek goes all on the Rechush too. Nesser, that the Isser of Zechar HaMalek is a filawal behema. And by the way, and that's why Shol was, was uh, he lost the Malucha because of this. So how could here Rashi suddenly say, V'agdish Shalom Lagavaya? Taldika Rashi. That is our first riddle. Here was our second riddle of the week. It says, Abilam built a whole bunch of Mizbachais. And the Gemara in Nazar and Hariya says that a person should do do even Shalai Lishman, Shalai Lishman by Lishman, because the Membe's Karbanais that Balak was Makriv, he Zachav Yatsimi Menu Rus. Balak's Karbanis brought, gave him the Ananical Rus. Even though he did it, Shalai uh, Lishma. So here's the problem. And Tysus and Brachas asks a question. At one place it says, if you do Shalai Lishma, Noach Lai Shalai Nivra, it's better if you weren't born. And otherwise it says, a person Well, which way is it? If it's better if you weren't born, it doesn't make sense to say that seems a So Tysus says, if you do it because you want to become Lishma, so it's better to start Shalai Lishma. But if you're doing it for e- with evil intent, like Lakanter, then it's Tevlai Shalai Nivra. So the question is, it says that Balak was Makriv. Why was he Makriv here? Well, he wanted Kal Yisrael destroyed. That's certainly not a, a good reason. That's an evil reason. It's certainly Lakanter. And yet, on this very situation, it says that because he brought these Membe's Karbanis, Rus came from him. So you see that Shalai Lishman, even with an evil intent, still has a positive outcome. So what's Pshat in the Gemara that says Tevlai Shalai, shalai Nivra? So it's a kasha and toisvis in brachis and afiyud zayin and meralif to be matzal oisa from this uh, from this uh, gemara in Azir. Those are our two riddles of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America our number is seven three two eight zero six eighty seven hundred. In England it's four four. That's the country code three three zero one one seven zero two five zero. In Eretz Yisrael it's. Uh, Zero two three seven two zero three oh four.
Let's go to our fabulous Shir. Chicago, Harav Hagoyin Rav Shmuel first. He's the Rav of Agudas Yisrael of Chicago. He is the uh, the Dayan of Aguda, and he the famous Pisic from Chicago. Welcome, Rav first. Here's my first well, question. Question. Most people are afraid to talk about it because they say it's an Isolashin horror to talk about a person in this case. What does the Rav hold? If you know, if you know this person is not Ehrlich and he's doing money, he's using it. You're not going to get your money, your chances are, good ch- this, most probably you're not going to get your money back. Fakert, it's like Shama Damoyecha. You know someone's losing, the Chavetz Chaim says, Fakert, there's no Yisrael Lashen Hara. And that's sometimes where the Yitzhara comes in, Lashen Hara and this and that. This type of case with the Ponzi scheme, it seems to me clearly, if you know someone is not being Ehrlich, you're to tell your friends uh, that they should not invest with him. If you know the person is not Ehrlich, and you, you and you know a friend is putting in money. You have to mechuyev to tell him. Aflesam adam reyecha. The Chavos Chaim writes it clearly. Aflesam reyecha is now in the game of fascists. They get a moment also clearly passive now, like that. Ladina. Now one of the, the things is that the Chavos Chaim also puts in one of his seven tnayim is that you have to warn the person. A lot of people are very uncomfortable going over to a Ponzi schemer and warning him, and therefore because of that they say, well, if we didn't warn him, am I still allowed to say? Still allowed to say. If you know for sure it's a Ponzi scheme, you're mechuyv to Not you're allowed to say. You're mechuyv to say. Well, that's not a Ponzi It's not a Yishuv. Even, even if you're not warning the person, which is, I guess, you're not going to be mekayim in the mitzvah, but you'll still be mekayim the din of Lysam and Aldamariah. Correct. What about the issue of Masira? Here's the, here's the reality. You know, if they take this guy to Besden and he's going to say, you know, you stole $60 million. And he says, I really feel terrible. I don't have any money left. What about your house? It's in my wife's name. I gifted it to her, my car, my this. Everything. I have nothing. So a Besden, all a Besden can do is, okay, you don't have any money. So they say, sorry, if you call the authorities on it, which is, a, which is what's the aid is, is really no justice being done. And, and additionally... There's a foreshadin in Chayshim Mishpat and Shim Peches. Someone's mazik is a rabbim. There's no, you're allowed to be moisted. There's no list of being moisted on someone who's mazik is a rabbim. Foreshadin. Right. There's no there's no about it. Zion. Zion. And the, the problem is Ramesha takes another position because when he was asked about a butcher in Baltimore who was Mazak Sarabim, Ramesha took the position if the Masir is gonna cause a bigger damage to him than Bezdin could do, then you're not you, 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 it's a riot from the story when he somebody stole the Taina, so he cursed him, he put him in he put him in Nidra, he said, Paganef doesn't go to Nidra, he's getting me more, so you should read Shamta. And, and, and he was right. So Ramesh says, you see, you can, he going to send the guy to jail. He, he's going to go to jail. Allah, all these mechuyev is, is whatever Ghanif is mechuyev in. So Ramesh was opposed. I don't know what he did with the, with the Shulchan Aruch that you're quoting in Shin Pechet. I, I assume Ramesh's case wasn't told Mazik or Sarabim. He's not going to argue on the Shulchan Aruch. First of all, the Yisraeli Moshe, not everyone agrees to her. There's a tshuva in Kervitz Tshuva's from the Yoshev that disagrees. It means he holds like the Ponomirus that there's a... There's no Mesir in this case, even even if he's going to be in jail. 
But it seems to me, even according to Ramosha, the Mazik is a rabbim, it seems to me he'd be murdered to that. The case he's talking about in the Igus Moshe is talking with a, 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 just a case, not, not a case of Mazik rabbim. Someone, someone who did something wrong, so you can't put him in jail because you're giving him bigger Einish than he deserves. Someone's a Mazik is a rabbim, it's a different category. You go to, completely. Go to the police. Yeah. And you go to the police. You go to the police. Now let me ask you, here's what I get asked all the time. People say, say you know, the guy's being Mazik is a rabbim, there's we had another grouse. He was telling us how many gittin it causes. Husbands thought they were trying to help out and invest some of the money they're not in and this and that. Then it's all lost. It's the aggra- but here's what people say. You're going to go to the police. It's true, this guy's a terrible. He's a Russian. The hula, the hula. What about Shizuchim for his kids or his kids? Guilty because the father did an Avera? What do you do for the family's reputation, the mother's so reputation? When it comes to Shizuchim, people have to have seichel. Realize, listen, the father could have been uh, uh, not an Elcha person, so on. But the children are Elcha children. Why should children suffer? Of course, it's going to hurt Shaduchim. What could you do about it? We have a Shachonach. Shachonach knew, knew about Shaduchim. Shachonach knew about all these things. And so after Pekin says Mazik the Rabbim, there's no way they're going to uh, going to the, going to the, uh, to the authorities. Of course, in any case, it's going to hurt Shaduchim. Shachonach knew that also. You got to do what it says in Shachonach. And there's a Rebbeinu running the world. If the one's Bashad supposed to find Shad, or find Shad, no matter if, if the father or grandfather did Ponzi scheme, it doesn't make a difference. Okay, let me ask the Ravasira. On one hand, we find follow Lamanishku Viro. It says by Dr. Mamre, they would do it to Shasa Leal right? So you see that yes. they weren't worried about about Shadokhim and stuff. On the other right. hand, and I, I don't have Shulchanach with me, but I think it's in like Shin Lamedawad, where they say that if you're going to be, put somebody in need, it's going to cause them to go fry it. Off the dirt. Yeah, it's a long taz. It's a whole long taz. Yeah, so, right. So yeah. the Samas is Shalom. On one hand, we say that Samas is Chastri Shalom to push the family off a cliff. On the other hand, the Shulchanach, the, 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 the Tyrus says, Lan Yishmu Viro. Well, I'm sure the Taz knew the Pusik. Which way is it? The Taz or the Pusik? You have to use it. That's where you have to come and speak to a Rav about it. You know, you can't just, it's Kedai to speak to a Rav who knows these in Yonim. When, he, when, when do you go all the way, when don't you? It depends, it's like Shudu Dadaina. You know, Chuyv to speak over the Rav, and, and there are cases that Rabbanim don't go to Saudis, in case it says not to. And that's, that's how a person should be known. You shouldn't just, just, uh, you know, you could rant, it says, listen, it's Kedai to speak it over with a Rav who deals with these in Yonim, and he should, uh, and Pasca accordingly. The Rav should Pasca, and he should listen to whatever the Rav tells him to do. Okay. But first, thank you very much. It's a great honor to talk to you. Alto. Bye. Joining us from New York is a Rav Zalman Graus. He's arguably the most famous uh, boyer in America, certainly one of the uh, Dayan, a Toyin. He's a Mechaber of many Sfarim, Habari Vashem Afor Chalakim, Milam Balacha many Chalakim. He has on Erevin. He used to be a Magid Shirin Bells. He was an editor of the Yitzra Paiskim. Welcome, Reb Zalman. Hi, good afternoon, Rabbi So here's the question. I'm going to start with a Ponzi scheme. A guy borrows money and he says, I'm going to invest it. I'm giving you 20% interest, sometimes 30% interest. And then he goes to another guy, borrows from him. That's how Ponzi works. He takes the first guy's money, pays the other guy his 20%, keeps a little, develops a reputation. If somebody pays 20%, soon there's millions of dollars coming through his door. Madoff, Bernie Madoff. What happens? At some point, he can't feed it. It's just too big. He stops paying, and everybody finds out it was a Ponzi scheme. So they take this guy to a Besden, right? And the guy says, Ainley, I have no more money. So Besden is not empowered to throw him into jail. So 
And they say, look, if you have no money, there's nothing we can do. He says, yeah, my house, my beautiful multi-million dollar house is in my wife's name. My uh, my uh, Range Rover is in my wife's name. My summer bungalow colony is in the bank. Everything that they say, look, you have no money, there's nothing we can do. What did they do by Madoff? They went to all the investors who for 20 years had been taking money, and they said, we want an accounting of everybody what they got, and we want to claw it all back because you were paid by the first guys. The, the people who came after you were basically, they thought they were writing checks to be invested in the stock market. Really, it was going into your pocket. So it, I was a Mechach I was stolen from. You have the Geneva. Give me back the Geneva. They clawed back, I don't know, 40 or 50% of the money, right? Now you're the dying in this you're the dying in this case. He says, Ainley. So a bunch of the people come to you and they say, Rabbi Grouse, we want you to go. We want to have the ability to claw back from all these investors. We'll be masmin them all here. We'll give them, uh, we'll give them uh, hasmanas to then and we want it back. And I don't care what they did with the money. They built the house with it. We want your house. We want your car. It was my money they took. What would you pass in? And I, this is a very complex, Shiloh, but walk us through it step by step. Uh, yes, can get combined. Question: The combined shaila that uh, has many many shailas combined. Let's start from practically, and then we'll go halachically. From practically, nobody calls to the to the entire this Ponzi scheme person because they know that he doesn't have anything. It's wasting time, wasting energy, wasting money. But halachically, he has to give back the money because it was taken mekachtoris, as you call it. It's not a mekachtoris; it's a little bit different, but. It is in this, that family, in that category, and if he has money, it's no question he has to give it back because this was taken for investment and not for, to do a, a sponsor scheme. That is no question, and everybody will agree with that. That's not in dispute. But in fact, these kind of people don't have the money. Now, a different question, what is, is also practically almost not shy, even, but then we'll go to Allahically. We have no basin a consolidated basin that is able to take all the people that have money taken, they have no authority. Everybody there in New York is no basin of a city. And I told you already several times in our discussions that this is a mistake and we're taking the Derech Mushul, the Hashal, as if it has been a basin. There is a basin, there's many botadinim, even in the small town of Lakewood or Muncie, and uh, you cannot consolidate case because somebody will go in this basin, somebody will go in that basin. This is from practical point, it's impossible even to do that. When the Allah gives you and allows you to do that, it's also impossible. But in this kind of case, this is halachically, we have to do, have to understand from a logic point, there's no mekachtoris, the word mekachtoris. I'll explain what mekachtoris is. If you sell something, it's a mekachtoris. In the car, you sell a car, and this buyer sells it for a second person, a third person, a fourth person. It's a mekachtoris. Then this car belongs to the first seller. If all this, because it's an identical it's an it's a you are able to you know what the car is who is the car is a tangible asset and that belongs to the seller when you're talking about money it's a totally different story and people have to understand that you don't have money in the bank you don't if you give a package of cash and uh, you take it and, and you give it further and further, then you are right. Then it's the same thing as you give a car or a piece of furniture or a watch. That's the same thing if you have a bundle of money. But in our time, all the business goes through banks. People don't have money in the bank. Only if you have a safe box, then you have money in the bank. 
the bank owes you money. You're lending money for the bank, and the bank owes you money. And you authorize the bank to pay this guy or that guy, and the third authorized. This means never exchange actual money. You are going about creditors. That in Allah doesn't work that this is mechatoris. Because if you give him money for somebody, and this somebody means you gave him a check, you authorize the bank to pay him money. And he gives authorized his bank to give it for a second or a third. This money goes, is not the same money. If, if I didn't explain myself, I would explain again. But this is. Oh, you're saying you're saying you're saying if if you lent the guy, if you gave the guy a candelabra and he gave the the other guy he paid with the candelabra, you could say, look, that's my candelabra. But money is fungible. Once you deposit it, it becomes an electronic thing. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's just an electronic debit. When he passes it on, you can't say those are my electronic numbers. They don't exist anymore. It's just a concept at that point. That's mm -hmm. what you're saying, right? Exactly. What, so, so is Rabbi Grouse, is your conclusion then that since when the money goes into the bank, at that point, it's not your money there, it's just a Sheba that the bank has to pay you back money, and the proof of the pudding of that is the bank can do whatever they want with your money. They send it to the Fed, they earn overnight funds. They could use the money. It's like Sardinia, it's their money at that point. They have an obligation. So when they pay, when they pass on your money to another party. So let's say I, you know, I invest a million dollars. The next day you to, to, to this fellow, the next day he writes a check for a million dollars, gives it right to another guy, and then he goes bust. I can't go to that person and say it's my million dollars because it's not my million dollars. My million dollars is by the bank. The bank gave a different million dollars to this person. That's your conclusion, right? Yes, exactly. You put it in the right words. So if, 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 if somebody deals sort of indirectly the shibud of his friend by collecting on the shibud is there no way in halacha to collect on it like, let's, say, let's say it would be one person let's say it would just be one person I, I came to this guy I invested a million dollars he took the million dollars he put it in the bank and he gave it to his daughter can I go to the daughter and say, you have my million dollars? She says, I'm sorry. She heard from Rabbi Grouse. The money went in. Now it's just a shibud. My father gave the bank, gave me a different shibud. You cannot have my money. What would be the halacha in that case? The halacha would be, let's say somebody steals from, from the post box, steals a check. Well, the check is addressed to you, and it still sits in deposit by himself. Then you may go to the bank and say, I didn't get the check. And the bank will go after him. But you... They have a direct claim to the bank. If somebody deposited a check, what you supposed to deposit it? That's a one way to go. The other way, it's called Mazik Shibude Shechaveri. That is a different category with what there is a remedy. If you take a check, what this is a shibut, it's like a star. Take your star away, that's called Mazik Shibud Shachavera. And then so, then so would you be able yes, to collect from the daughter? Would you be able to collect a million dollars from the daughter? From the daughter, but who deposited the check? If the father deposited the check, right. and the father gave them other money for the daughter, then I cannot go to after the daughter. Can even, though after it's, the even, though it's, even though you could track it and say it's right, this, it's this exact yes. million dollars. Yes, yes, yes. Because this is not, you're going as a, as a mazik, not because you have your money. You don't have there, the, the daughter doesn't have your money, but the father was mazik shibudai. That means it was a star, belonged to you, and he destroyed your star or deposited the star, whatever. But again, you may go to the bank, and the bank will do whatever they can. I understand. You see, what seems to, it 
So it, it feels very wrong, doesn't it? Look, wrong and right, that's a different story. That's right. No, so, so may, I understand. May, no, my may, argument was that Rabbi Graf, my only point in this would be, and this is beyond my pay grade, this is your area of expertise, is that a bank today, nobody looks at a bank as a shibut. People look at a bank as this is sort of how money is transmitted, transported, and passed along. And it's true, the bank turns it into a digital number, etc. That's but that's how money is today. So if you would ask the bank, do you have a, a claim against the bank? Tell me, I don't have a claim against the bank. I have my money in the bank, right? So it's true, technically, technically, technically you're right, but I don't think anybody, any sane person looks at it and says, oh, the bank owes me money. No, I have my deposit in the bank. That's a language problem. That's not, that's not a concept, a legal concept. We, we used to have old languages, like say, I know by heart. What does it mean I know by heart? You know by your head, not by your heart. But this is a slang, what we use, all kind of slang, specifically slangs that was used in old time. We use it again because we used to have money that we used to have money in the bank. Actually, money that I deposit, save the deposit. So but, let me ask you yeah, a different question. question. I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing. That. So let me ask you another question. I mean, uh, I mean, the Gemara says that if somebody's if somebody does a deal with a ger and the ger dies, but he didn't pick it up yet, you could grab it first. It seems very wrong, but technically that's how it works, right? So, so let me ask you another. Ramosha says in a number of areas that um, that Dina de Mahusadina, right, will override strict halacha by financial issues when it impacts a large number of people, and that's how the the community as a whole sees it. Right, Ramayshas and Chelik Zion, it's Samar Beis. And as a Chazayinish, it says something similar to that. My question is, would you be able to, to collect here Aldina the Mahusadina? There was Madoff, Madoff, Madoff were able to collect, because that's American law, right? Over here, I want to collect uh, Aldina the Mahusa. Okay, again and again, I'm only repeating myself. I, uh, if you want, I'll explain a little bit Dina de Mahuse, what I did it already. I'll do it again. First, what means Dina de Mahuse? Dina de is a so far-fetched concept that people don't even know the language. We are talking about a Malchus. We are talking about a governor that gives orders. King gives orders. A king is not made. He doesn't make about Sikhsuchim ben Odom lechaver. That's not what we're talking about in the Malchuse. Even the language, the missing language. In Malchuse, everybody knows that a governor and president gives orders. A king in the old time gives orders he wanted should be ordered. Like I said, somebody goes in a hotel. He has to follow the orders of the hotel. If you cannot put your, your garbage outside, which doesn't suppose you have to, the car, you have to put it in the right place. That is called order. For example, this is an order. You cannot dra- drive, drive in a different way, in the other way around. Not, not to you. The, 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 the traffic goes left and you go right. Because you will say, I don't recognize the Indian Malchus. There is order. It's a different story than people deal with each other. There's nothing to do with Malchus at all. Only in Karka, for example, a deed or a title, the government had to know whose Karka is because they had to collect taxes. This was everything done to the Malchus. In the old time, there was no even laws. There was no such a thing enacted laws for, between people. It was the judges did decide. 
paragraphs Dina de Malchusadina, the Ramah brings two opinions, whether it's metaltalin or bicarca, and there certainly is the opinion that it's only by karka, and there's also the opinion that it's only by misim, it's only by taxes, but there are other opinions, there are opinions, many opinions, that hold that anything that has to do with the functionality of the country, so for example, in a malchus where contracts had no laws, there were no property rights, you wouldn't be able to have a, a, a kingdom. So therefore, Benadam Lechaveri also would have a din of Dina de Malchus Adina. Additionally, there are those, many opinions hold that there's Dina de Malchus Adin too. So I ask you, according to the opinion that it is by Nodam Lechaveri and it is by Metaltalin. And Ramosha takes that opinion, right? Would you be able to go to a Bezdin and say, it's true it's only Yeshiva, but since if I took him to federal courts, they would allow me to enforce it just like they did by Madoff, I would like the Bezdin to do it as well. Okay. But you are all, what you're saying, Metaltalin or Karka, everything, as I said, if you drive the wrong direction, it's nothing to do if you have to have to deed, the, the most taxes are being collected the real estate taxes. This was something ordered by a king how he should pay taxes. So the king interested, the king ordered. But people would have to deal between people. That has nothing to do with the king. It's not a question of metaltim, not metaltim. There are poskim, let's say, by Hezekiah ben Ashchenim. Since that's a question how to build, how ownership of the karka, that has to do with the malchus. But what you borrow money or you sell, this has nothing to do with the malchus. And even if, and I told you, even if we say the malchus, it's not feasible that we don't have a basin should be simply utilized. This, this made of, it was a receiver, court appointed a receiver, and the receiver took, go, went, rather, receiver and the father receiver went after all the people took money all the people that owed the money they had a joint case and they were able to consolidate all the people and all the claims they were able to do something you don't have a basin for that is no power a basin in our time has no power like a federal court it's not feasible even if you would say that so let me ask you a question i understand i understand it's not practical. So let me ask you a question. A guy comes to you and he says, Rabbi Grouse, I lost a million, five million, ten million. I heard there's a case in Williamsburg now. Guys lost a hundred million dollars. In Lakewood, there's a case. Guys lost a hundred million dollars. Flatbush, same number, big numbers. And he says, there's no way for me to collect. I, I, I want to be able to. There are people that got three times their money out. So, so you say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. So this guy's a smart guy. He says, listen, the, the Gemara says, you know, so you can't go Tarkoyas. Why? Because it's a Chalashem. Why is it a Chalashem? Because you should be going to Bezdin. So this case says, Marshal Rav Untaman, the Rav Rashi of said, criminal matters, there's no, you don't go to Bezdin because they're not empowered. If somebody molested or raped, you don't go to Bezdin. What's Bezdin going to say? There's no, he says, you go. So this guy says, look, I have a case. There's hundreds of investors here. It's going to go to six different, but they do them. It's impossible to do. I want to be able to go to our case, have them consolidate the entire case. They'll bring in all the hundred investors, guys who got four times their money back, guys who lost everything. And let's consolidate them. There's no Chil Hashem here because like you said, a Bezdin can't do anything. What, what would you tell him? Rabbi Liechtenstein, we went through this issue in many, many cases. And uh, it is very hard to go by each case to have a repeating the same issue. I would, I would avoid this question. This question is too complicated for also for those people that want to go in court. It's very hard to explain on the air. The money has a lot of problems. 
a lot of problems involved. It's not only court cases. It ends up in criminal. It's not a question for courts. This ends up in criminal and not only for the people. What Rabonim should have been done, something else. They should have been a long time ago, long time ago, to put big, 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 big Moidores on all the streets and all the newspapers. Stop investing. Stop investing. This is nonsense investing. You cannot invest by other people. It doesn't work. Not, never it works. Only big companies, if you invest in big companies, known government companies that have security and is, is by the government, it is the government responsible or a big. But why you should re- deposit by some individual what, he, what is just went out from the coil or he declared himself a big businessman? Why you should do it? And the Rabbi Shafran already wrote about that, but he's the only one that he, I give him a lot of credit that he had the courage to go out. Why the rabbis are quiet in this in this terrible, terrible situation, what happens every day, I don't know. I cannot understand how the newspapers, our religious newspapers, take advertisement, all kind of nonsense advertisement, every day. Every day there is advertisement. He promises this kind of, of interest and that kind of interest, and everybody knows it's a sponsor scheme. And they are unfortunately naive people put their money. That should be the don. The aftermath uh, is very hard, very hardful, and it's, it's a pain. It's a pain how it went. But this is not only the solution as you think you go in court and you have tomorrow back the money. It doesn't work that way. And yeah. Okay, I, I want to tell you, Rabbi, so you're not speaking to a, a Rav who's a, a Russian Shiva who's, who's sitting on a big pile of fire. I mean, you're talking about somebody when he says it's not simple, he's talking about from real life experience. He's had on these entires where people came and probably cried their eyes out and lost everything they had. So he's talking from real, real experience sitting as a dying in these types of cases. Is it lush and horror to say the names of the perpetrators? In other words, and, and I'm particularly talking about the Pesrei Tshuva in Semikufnan Vav, the Pesrei Tshuva, who famously says, Reisi lahaskipai, hashekol hasifrei musa, herishu oilam al avoin lush and horror, vanoichi marish oilam laherach, avin gadol mizeh, vagam hu matza yosev, hu meniyas atzme ladaber b'makim ha-nitzrach, lahatza lesa-ashuk miyad oishkai, what do you feel? Do you feel that we can? And I don't speak about you. Should should people say, "Hey, so and so is a Ponzi scheme. So and so doesn't know what he's doing. You're going to lose." Like, how do you feel about that? I mean, you're you're big Talmud Chacham. Besides being a dying, what would you say to this sort of Chavatayim uh, Shaila? I must tell you, I'm not an expert in Loshon Hara and Loshon Hara, and I admit that I am not an expert in it. But I would like to only say and emphasize: it's not a question of names. Like, not a question of names. It is unfortunately whoever invests by other person person is doing wrong. Is It's no different. Not Moshe Yankel. Moshe Yankel is nothing but Loshonarena. Everybody knows who whoever <laughs> is in bankrupt. And what is not the Loshonarena? You give it for a, a next one. What people don't know yet. They, then he has a good a good uh, reputation until now because he's paying still they're paying the tax the interest. It's, it's not a pinpointing who this Moshe or Yankel is wrong. Moshe Yankel and Berenshmer, whoever takes money, whoever takes money is don't give him money. And it's a mitzvah lefasen. Don't 
give anybody is Jewish that come to Tchachem, is a Shemesh Shabbos, is a Tzadik, yes, but don't give him money. You won't take him as a painter, you won't take him. You won't take him for a driver, you won't take him for anything. How what in the world do you give him money? For what? Give it for a company that that is the business that the government gives is, is behind that at least for $100,000, $200,000. If not, usually the government bails them out. A known company, not you give it for an individual. Well, I don't know how Lushen Hore comes in here. We don't know yet who is the next day. But it's no different. Anybody what gives money is stupid and he's wrong. Specifically, I must tell you one thing that the most heartbreaking is there's in the light that getting money from the Schwer or from the hardworking wife that she spent her life for saving money that should care able to support because she wants that the husband should learn on the shver. He takes the entire money without permission from the shver, from the, from the wife, the even it's written in the Tanoim. He promised. Usually to Sam he promised that. Specifically even without permission, and not he spends the money for something useful, not he buys for him, or he buys something in real estate, and something tangible, he, he gives in stocks, or he gets it for a third party person, and how, how many, you don't know how many Shalom buys this destroyed, how many getting it cost, because the wife doesn't want to know him anymore, why didn't you tell me where you put the money, it's not, it's not a question of Lashahara, you have to simply to say and cry and scream, and the Rabbonim has to do it in publicly. Stop this nonsense. It goes every year, every year after year, the same story, on and on and on, and nobody tries to stop it. Rabbi Graus, thank you very much for your time. As always, it's an honor. Thank you. Call thank you. Bye-bye. Joining us from New York is the world-famous defense attorney, Benjamin Brassman. Welcome, Mr. Brassman. Thank you very much. So. If, if there's a guy, he's, he's running a Ponzi scheme. Is there a concept of a mandated reporter where say, oh, I know about it, I have to report, inform the authorities, or does every citizen have a right to say, look, it's not my business? Well, you know, I really don't know that there's a mandated uh, reporting requirement. And, you know, a lot of uh, Orthodox people then have to struggle with the concept of Masira, although if you're a victim of a Ponzi scheme, I think most Rabbana will give you a heter that you can, you know, go to the authorities. But if you're asking me, is there a mandated reporting requirement? I don't believe there is. Okay, now, in your experience, have Rabbanim required people who've received funds from a Ponzi scheme before he went bust to return them? Have you ever seen that? No. I, I haven't seen that, and I don't know uh, uh, what Rabbanim you're, you're talking about, and I think it depends on which Rabbanim you ask. But, you know, uh, federal judges um, have referred to this uh, concept um, on occasion as an affinity fraud, where uh, because of your relationship to other uh, Jews in an Orthodox community, they tend to uh, trust you and they tend to believe that uh, you wouldn't take advantage of them. And I think, uh, unfortunately... You know, experience has shown that, you know, people who want to uh, engage in a Ponzi scheme really don't uh, worry about uh, uh, the halachic uh, um, implications or, uh, you know, really don't worry about, you know, who their victims are or are going to be. So I think every every Ponzi scheme is a little bit different, but, um, you know, many of them... uh, you know, take advantage of people who uh, they have befriended, either in the community or in shul. And, you know, my my advice is if something sounds like it's too good to be true, it generally isn't. Okay. Another question. If 
you have a syndicator who's taking a lot of money from people, and it's not a Ponzi scheme. He he went bust. Why his investments soured? Um, maybe you know, he made a lot of bad decisions. Maybe he made he 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 was a little bit he aggrandized it. He spoke with hyperbole. At what point does it become? Well, it was a bad investment, and where does it cross the line into wait? This is criminal behavior. Well, generally, you know, a Ponzi scheme requires there to be some element of fraud. It's not, uh, you know, you just uh, went bust. It's a misstatement of, you know, facts that uh, are done intentionally to convince people to uh, give you their money. And Ponzi scheme essentially means that, you know, the new money is being used to pay back uh, old money. And eventually you run out of money and uh, then it turns into a Ponzi scheme. And generally it also uh, results in a criminal. Uh, uh, prosecution. But, you know, these things take sometimes years uh, to unravel. And that uh, is unfortunate. But, you know, the government is pretty busy. And uh, sometimes people don't want to cooperate because, you know, they know the person. They don't want to see them and their family embarrassed or ruined. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's an individual uh, decision. It's generally not a community uh, decision. So. When it's not a Ponzi scheme, but it's just uh, exaggerations or maybe bad management by the syndicator, what's a, what type of a red flag, when, what would be considered a red flag to say, wait, this is behavior that's dumb, but this behavior cr- crossed into criminal. Like if a guy exaggerates his success in his folders and his flyers and his material, is that, is that, is that civil fraud? Would that be like, try to give us some type of a, a guideline. Well, you know, if the if the exaggeration turns into false uh, misrepresentations, uh, then it crosses the line. You know, if someone says, uh, you know, I'm good at this and I want to uh, do this, and they try their best, and it turns into uh, you know bad investment, that you know sometimes doesn't rise to the element even of uh, civil fraud. You know, and there are you know defenses that are available uh, to those people. But if it's uh, fraud from the outset, if it's uh, a lie, and many Ponzi schemes, you know, start out with, uh, you know, a hope and a prayer, and then it turns into uh, a nightmare for everyone involved. The person who is running a Ponzi scheme, you know, generally uh, knows that the people who are being victimized are uh, people who trust them, and uh, sometimes the trust is uh, misplaced, and every case is fact-specific. So if you're asking me, is there a general red flag? I think I said uh, before, if someone offers you a a deal where the investment return is guaranteed and the uh, rate of return is very high, and it's, you know, guaranteed every month the same uh, uh, return, that's generally not real. You know, most legitimate investments, um, even those that result in high returns, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to uh, work. So anybody who guarantees a return the same every month and it's a high uh, return, generally it's a mistake. Then you should stay away from an investment like that. There's also a track record. If you do your due diligence and you find out that this is a person who is, you know, essentially uh, created, you know, a reputation for themselves as being, you know, dishonest in some respects, I think you need to stay away. What happens if somebody was dishonest about their track record? Is that fraud? It can be, and a lot of this is fact-specific. By that I mean, you know, every case is uh, different. And, you know, it's a hard thing to explain, but, you know, I've seen so many of these where uh, you start the investigation, it looks real, and it turns into uh, something which is 
fraud from the beginning. Sometimes fraud happens after um, years of trying and you fail and, you know, you're embarrassed. So then you stop lying. So each case is different and, you know, it can be just a fraud. Ponzi scheme generally involves, you know, paying back uh, uh, new investors with money that is, uh, uh, you know, derived from old investors or old investors getting paid back with money that is derived from new investors. And at that point, it becomes a fraud because, you know, you're not explaining and you're not fully disclosing. And many people who are, uh, you know, wealthy or have some, uh, you know, money laying around and it's not necessarily rent money and you don't really need it to survive um, are are, uh, eager and greedy. And, you know, sometimes uh, that is uh, a problem and it turns into a a loss and criminal prosecution. And the sentences in these cases can be very high. So I want to, you know, explain that so that the people who are listening, if they're, you know, people who have lost money, that's one thing. If it's people who have made money illegally, the sentences can be very high because the uh, sentences in federal court that are uh, applied to uh, uh, Ponzi scheme, you know, sometimes uh, the losses are substantial and the losses in a fraud case uh, sometimes drive uh, the sentencing uh, guidelines that are uh, only advisory but many judges use them uh, to explain uh, or to uh, you know create uh, a sentence that is sometimes much higher than uh, a sentence for example in in a violent crime case which is you know a reality that uh, people don't necessarily understand and when you say very hard, give us some historical examples. Well, you know, sentences can be uh, uh, 20 years in a, in a, you know, a fraud case. And sentences can be, you know, very low depending on uh, the person's reputation. But people who are running Ponzi schemes are generally looking at, you know, sentences that are substantially higher uh, than you would imagine. And a lot depends on the jurisdiction. A lot depends on the individual judge. And some judges are more sympathetic uh, than others, but some judges are very unsympathetic when someone takes advantage of uh, an entire community. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the people who lose money um, in these, uh, what you refer to as a Ponzi scheme, are people who, you know, lack investment sophistication very often. And all they hear is, you know, 10, 15, 20% guaranteed um, every month. And, you know, for the first, uh, you know, early months or maybe the early years, the you know, interest payments, you know, come in just as promised and then suddenly nothing. And not only are they not getting interest, but they've lost their entire uh, investment. And, you know, the person involved, uh, maybe someone from the community who you trusted and uh, had a good reputation and was, you know, fundamentally honest uh, before and then turned into a a, uh, criminal, if you will, based on their own uh, greed. So it's uh, it's a terrible it's a terrible uh, uh, crime, and it generally takes advantage of people who uh, are vulnerable because they lack uh, uh, sophistication. And I've seen people who are very sophisticated, who um, you know have made a lot of money, but they're vulnerable because you know greed is uh, a terrible. Uh, a terrible uh, factor, and it's uh, uh, creating a, a great uh, deal of uh, of uh, loss. And then the Orthodox community isn't alone in this uh, uh, in this uh, victimization. But you know, you're asking me, uh, uh, do I know that it's the a community that's been victimized? I think it has. You know, and I've seen it um, in a lot of different communities. 
Now, when the government decides to move ahead, you know, gets interested and decides to charge, what's their success rate? Like, absence where you're the defense counsel, of course, but like, what are the chances that they can they get a conviction? They're, the chances are very high because the, the defenses that are available um, are, are few. And, you know, sometimes it's a state of mind. If you explain to me that, you know, this started as a, as a completely legitimate investment and then, you know, it spiraled out of control and I lost everybody's money and, uh, you know, that happens to be the truth, then, you know, doesn't necessarily result in a criminal prosecution. But if it's a fraud from the beginning and the number of victims is, you know, uh, many, um, then the success rate is uh, very high. And a lot depends on, you know, whether it's a, a, you know, a state local prosecution or a federal prosecution. And in a federal prosecution, uh, not only is the success rate high, but the sentencing uh, uh, imposed, the sentences imposed are very high as well. So... You know, it's a dangerous uh, proposition for the people who are investing and for the people who are running uh, the scheme. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Brassman. You're welcome. Be Take well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Joining us tonight is Rabbi Ari Marburger, Dian of the Business Halachic Institute of Lakewood, New Jersey. It's not welcome. If a of steals something and gives it away as a present, this third-party recipient of that, it's, halacha is clear that he would have to return it to the victim regardless of when the person goes up. There is, so translating it to our, our case, in the theoretical case where a Ponzi schemer takes goods directly from an investor and gives it to a third party, certainly if the item is still around, certainly the third party would have to return it. There was an interesting discussion about, a, about an investment where there was an ISCA, and the recipient, the fellow who was managing the investment, instead of managing the investment prudently, took some of the funds and actually gave it away as a gift to a friend. So there was a discussion about this in Yerodeus and in Kofayin Zayin. And over here, the halacha is, there is a bit of a machlekes. But the way the Chavaz Das understands it, certainly if the item is still there, if the, the actual money that was in the business is given, a, given, given, given away inappropriately, the investor has the right to recover those funds. As long as he can prove that these were his funds and they were given away inappropriately, he has the right to recover the funds. Where it's a bit questionable is if the recipient acted in good faith. They simply didn't know these were coming from the investor. He thought it was the, the, it was, thought it was the manager's private funds. And he then went ahead and used the fund. If he, if he was given food, he ate the food. It's no longer here. So here we have a question of liability. On one hand, the investor gave the funds, and today we know his funds were inappropriately given over to a third party. On the other hand, this third party that benefited from the funds, that ate the meal, had no idea it was stolen, and no idea that what he was doing was, was, was anything wrong. So here there's an interesting discussion, and just to, to sort of bring it down to a, to, to a, to a form, make it easier to understand emotionally. Imagine you're invited to someone's house. You come to his house, you're served a beautiful feast. And there is every sort of, all sorts of, of fancy and expensive food. You enjoy the meal of your life. A week later, you get a phone call. The fellow introduces himself. He was a catering company. And he's able to establish that this, this friend of yours, your host, had actually stolen all the food and then fed it to you. Do you now owe this catering company the $200, which is the market value of, of the food that you ate? So this is a machlekes, but what many persons say is that no. Since in this case you had no idea this food was stolen, and you had every reason to assume you're invited to someone's house and he puts food in front of you, you have every reason to assume it's his. This would be considered an item, 
and your liability would be limited to your actual benefit from that meal. So how much that is will depend on the case. Had you not been invited to his house, if you would have instead had a tuna fish sandwich, it would have cost you 2 $3. So that's roughly what you'd pay, perhaps a bit more because you had a better meal. But you would not be considered a, a, a Ghana if you're not a thief. You're not even considered a mazik towards because you acted in good faith. You had It was an oinus gomer. And therefore, in that case, you would have to pay only for the actual benefit that you had from these stolen goods. But would the investor be able to say, give me the building? He gave them $2 million and they built the building. And this actually happened with Chabad in Broward County, where they received a, a few million dollar gift from Rothstein, a Ponzi schemer. And now the question is, can the investors say, you spent $2 million on that building, on that fancy building, I'd like the building. Okay, so let, let me deal with this on, 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 on three different levels. The first is, let's deal with the Ponzi schemer himself. And we're going to address, I think, another hot button issue. And that is, whenever a Ponzi scheme unravels, there are a lot of investors that lost out. And everyone wants to recover, cover their funds. You have, for argument's sake, $65 billion of outstanding claims. You have a bank account that has, say, $5 million. Everyone's receiving just a small fraction of their money back. And that's, and how to divide it, whether it's prorated based on the outstanding claims, that's, that, that's, that's another discussion. What happens, let's shift the case slightly, to the last investor in. The fellow who wired $20 million, $20 million to Madoff the day before everything blew up. Does he have a priority claim on his $20 million that's still sitting in the account? So, again, putting aside the issue about bank accounts and shifting money, well, again, we'll get to that. But assuming his money is still there, the answer is yes. He does have a priority claim. It doesn't go into the rest of the pot. So if someone can show that he wired in X amount of dollars right before the crash and that money was still sitting there, he would have that claim. He would be able to pull out that money. Everything else would go into the pot and would get divided among all the other investors. What would be if the day before everything blows up, the fellow wires in $20 million to Madoff's account, but it doesn't sit there. Madoff takes the $20 million and buys the property. Now we have a serious question. This property value is still $20 million. Does this get put back into the pot and you have $65 billion worth of claims against this property and everyone gets their prorated share, everyone will get their few cents on the dollar? Or can that last investor say that, no, this item was purchased with my money. If it's purchased with my money, then I have a priority claim against this. So this question is discussed. There's a, a safer at Trumice. It deals with a, with a case where a lady stole something, and the issue is she bought, bought something with the stolen goods. The Archatokhan extends this concept to a cotton as well, and it's discussed by, by the Bach in the context of a creditor and, and, and an investor as well. But what they all say is that the investor does have a claim. It's what the Chalipin of Gazela, if the Goslin takes the stolen goods, buys something else, the original investor, the person whose money was used to purchase the item, does have a priority claim, and he would be able to take back that building. It would not get put into the rest of the pot. Now, this is a, although this is, there are quite a number of sources that take this approach, this is not universal. The Chazanis actually says the Halacha would not be like this. And in addition, I would add that your case, I believe, is worse. Because it's one thing if Ms. took the money and bought a, bought a property. Then arguably, we have a list of, of sources that would allow the last investor not only to recover his money, but even to recover things that were purchased with, with those funds. However, if and gave that to an innocent third party, 
that innocent third party went in and purchased something, I believe in that case, everyone would agree that the investors would not have a direct claim on that building. To, to bring that out in another way, what would be if instead of purchasing a building, the, this organization went ahead and invested in stock in Enron? Could the, when Enron goes bust, could they turn to the investor and say, listen, this, this stock was, or this investment was made, made with your money. If it went down in value, that's your problem. I think we would all understand that that, that would not be a valid argument. The, the, the money was stolen. The fact that the organization chose to invest it poorly is not, the, is not the, the victim's problem. It's not the investor's problem. That's the organization's problem. And therefore, on the, on the flip side as well, even if there is a property, a building that has value, there would not be a direct claim against that particular building. Yeah, Rabbi Margaret, let me ask you a question. Assuming that the money was put into a bank account and he then, then takes a check from that bank account, and he gives it to the charity that buys the building. Now, until the charity deposits the check, the money is technically still in the account, which means all the investors have access, they still have some ownership over that money, which would mean that when the charity deposits the check, in effect, they are completing, or they become part of the gazela too. They become thieves as well, unknowingly, but they are actually removing it from the aegis of the investor. So, based on Rav Chizdu, says, Ratzamizegaiva, Ratzamizegaiva, or he can collect from either party who completed the theft, why would the investor not have the ability to go after the charity? Okay, so two, so two points. The first point is, is, that, is that even even accepting this analysis, it would come out there would be a, a fascinating distinction between, between writing a $2 million check and him wiring the funds directly into the charity. Because in that case, which is typically the way $2 million donations are made, the charity is completely passive, the money is wired in, initiated, and it, it happens without the charity's action. And clearly they are not participating in the theft in that case, and, and the original analysis would, would still apply. Now, as far as in a theoretical case where, where a check was given, I, we have to take a step back and deal with two other questions. And that is, it's the investor wired the money or deposited the money into, in cases where it's getting sifted from one account to the next before it gets wired into or, or before a check is sent to the charity. The theft has already, already been completed. While the investor thought money, he was putting the money into a, into a, into a separate managed account, so the theft probably happened. Now, on, on top of that, we have to realize, and this is really a question on the whole analysis, is that in typical case of a theft, you're dealing with silver. Some, there's a tangible item. Someone breaks into your house, takes the silver, and it passes from hand to hand. It's easily traceable. There's an item that's stolen. And until you melt it down, there's no shinoi, and there's a direct claim against this asset. The problem when we're dealing with a bank account is there's no specific dollar or item that belongs to the investor that was ever technically stolen. Now, the investor has, it, has money in, in, in his bank account. What that simply means is there is a debt. When he de made a deposit in his bank account, the bank now owes him X amount of dollars. When he transferred that, he didn't take dollars that belonged to him and gave. All he did is he gave instructions to his bank whether it was a check or by a wire, but he gave instructions to his bank that, that the debt, that instead of paying me this money, I'm now transferring that debt. You now owe this money to a company. When it goes ahead and gives money to a, 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 a third party, one can argue that he is not taking a specific item or he's not taking the investor's silver or a dollar that belongs to the investor and transferring it to a third party. What he's doing is he's essentially taking a debt that the bank owes him fraudulently and telling the bank to pay it to a third party. But in that case, there's no 
direct theft of any tangible item. And it's therefore very not unclear that someone depositing the check could be, could be called a ganev. You can call them a mazik because through depositing the check, the bank no longer has that original debt to the investor, but because there's no tangible item changing hands, it's very difficult to say that it is it is an actual gzela. Yeah, but then if you take that position, then arguably wouldn't be a goslin either. He wouldn't be a thief either because he's not taking anything tangible either. He's just taking a debt. Okay, so that that, that is exactly where we were heading. And the, the, the question that we have here is when a person is depositing a check, because you're not dealing with an actual item or dollars that belong to the victim, how do we address this? Is this gazela? Is this mazik? How does halacha view this kind of action? So an argument can be made, as we said before, that it is not direct theft. There is actually an interesting chazanah that has a case, and there's a, a similar uh, in Sivas, it's in the Kulchav Gimel, that has uh, you know, different reasons, but a, a similar effect. But they're dealing with cases, in a case where someone owes, Ruvain owes Simon a debt. Someone else collects that debt. Um, the particular case of the Chazaynis is that Shimon sold the de- uh, sold a debt to Levi. The debtor did not realize there was a transfer. So the original creditor, even though he had already sold the debt, went ahead and collected the debt uh, from, 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 from the debtor. And obviously he had no right to do that. But the question is, is this simply a question of Mazek, because he's destroyed the debt that is now belongs to Levi? Or can we call him a goblin? Can we say that the actual funds that he collected become the property of Levi? Chazanish suggests, and he doesn't say this for sure, but he suggests that we can look at the at, at cashing the check or at, at, at collecting the debt. The, those We can look at those funds as the payrolls that were produced by the original debt. And therefore, the Chazanish suggests that perhaps the money that was that, that he collected, that money, the dollars themselves would belong to would belong to Levy, would belong to the to to, to to the real to the real to the real creditor. Now if you take this analysis all, all the way, then anyone who then then even if there are transfers from one bank account to the next or from one, one check to the next, you can argue these are payrolls of the original debt, and that would perhaps give the victim a claim against the ultimate recipient. It's again, it's a chiddush, and even chazanish is, is is unsure of it. But this is another approach or another thought in halacha that would give the victim a direct claim against the organization for going ahead and ultimately being the recipient of of these funds. Rabbi Marburger, given that so much of money today is electronic, don't we have to find a way to make the theft of electronic into a gazela and not see it as a davar shembo mamish? Otherwise, you know, you know, in a technological age, it's going to be very hard to actually commit a theft. True, true. And there's the concept of Dina de Machusadina. And that is that we do not live in a vacuum. We live in the United States of America. There are many civil laws. And there is extensive discussion as to under what circumstances do these laws impact the halacha. Rav Henkin has a, 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 a fascinating letter that he, and about the concept of Dina and he makes the following argument. He says that how to apply Dina Dina is an issue. There are many, many different disputes, many different opinions. It's a very complex figure. However, he makes the point, that, essentially the point that you're making, and that is there was, Klal always had a body that made rules, that made takonis, in order to facilitate commerce, in order to make sure things just made sense. Today, he says, where we do not have that, we have to turn to the civil law, the civil government, where, which is very active in making rules and make, making takonis to ensure commerce, commerce works. 
And therefore, he takes the position he's actually discussing rent control in that particular, particular letter. And rent control is something which, on a strict halachic basis, doesn't exist. However, he says, because there is a clear problem with, with the ability, with the availability of rental units, he says, we do not today have a halachic body that can make these kind of takanas. So when the civil government makes a law in order to protect commerce, commerce, a law that's clearly fair and that's needed for today's circumstances, he said in that case, the concept of Dino Mahusudino would apply. Now, taking that logic, that would obviate much of this discussion today. The point that you're making is that money today is electronic. If we look at it in a very technical sense, there will be quite a number of ramifications that will would create serious difficulties in various areas of commerce. And therefore, based on Hankin's approach, this would be a case where you would be able to apply Dino Mahusudino regardless of the other technical issues of Dino Mahusudino. But there is a possibility of distinguishing in the respect that on things like rent control, where there, there is no halachic precedent, so Dina de Mahusadina could rule. But in areas where there is a halachic precedent, halacha trumps Dina de Mahusadina. So the question would be if halachically, by stealing electronic money, I'm not considered a thief. Can we use Dina the Mahusadina to sort of trump halacha and turn me into a thief? I think that goes beyond what Rav Hankin is suggesting, because rent control is an area where there is no halacha, and therefore we can accept Dina the Mahusadina as the decisor in that case. I'm, I'm obviously referring to the shachia. Mm-hmm. Understood. Understood. Your point is well taken. And so what you're, you're, you're pointing out the, the famous Shach in Seminai and Gimel that says that Dina Machus and Dina can never apply in a case where it contradicts the actual halacha. Now, the Shach, just for all, the Shach is actually coming to argue on what seems to be the simple reading of the Ramah that extends Dina Machus to Dina to any case which is the Tevas Beneham and Dina, any case in which it's for the better of society. The Shach argues and says this cannot be because it cannot contradict halacha. And quite frankly, that this is a huge machoikis. There is many poiskim bring down the Shach, they bring down the Ramah and say at the end of the day, it's the sake of the Dina. There's actually a Dave Mesarim also talking about rent control that says the halacha is not like the Shach. So that's, again, it's not a matter that for us to decide here tonight it is a, it is a, a machoikis that's been going on for, for, for many generations. But there certainly is that opinion that, that, that you cannot, Dina Malchus and Dina cannot, cannot override a direct halacha. Now that being said, that being said, rent control, it's true that Chazal don't talk about it, but it's clear in halacha that a landlord has the freedom to charge whatever he chooses for his property. There's a concept of I know, but as long as he discloses it, and he's, then he can do what he wants. And therefore, the Chazanist points out that in a technical sense, every single law is a contradiction to halacha on some level. And that, so based on that, there are, I mean, a number of different approaches into how far to take the concept of Dina Dina. But I think a very cogent argument can be made. There is no halacha that refers directly to electronic funds. That's something that didn't exist. We can be Madonna Mosa Limosa. We can say that regular, regular debts were treated in a certain way. We can say regular theft was treated in a certain way. But when we have a new phenomenon, and this phenomenon created new problems where that didn't exist Bimei Chazal, then there's a strong argument to be made that such laws would not be considered Kenegat Halacha. It would not fall under, under, under the shock's concern. And therefore, the argument can be made that everyone perhaps would agree to the Dino under these circumstances. Would you, what about an individual who received money, and in retrospect, he was being paid by new investors? 
were being but, scammed, would you see him differently than a charity or no? No. I, in, in this particular case, where the investor was, was the, what the investor was entitled to were the profits generated by his funds. We know now that there were no profits, and, and in fact, there were no investments. So what he, what he was receiving was money that he simply was not, was not entitled to. And since there were no profits generated, it was at best a gift to, to these recipients, which ultimately came out of the other investors' money. And I think, I, I think it would therefore be subject to the, to the same clawback provisions, with the only complication being how to deal with the electronic funds and the fact that there was, that, you know, the money sifted. But, Putting that aside, I believe it would be the equivalent of a, of a gift. Thank you very much, Rabbi Margo. You're welcome. Joining us from Lakewood is Ellie Freed. He goes by the nomer, the investment guy. He runs Leatherback Investments. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you for having me, Doug. Looking forward. So, Ellie, I've gotten calls in the last few weeks, numerous calls, both about one or two Ponzi schemes in Lakewood, as well as a number of large syndicators who are going bust. Most, a few of them, in less than uh, uh, you know the straightest ways. What is it? Why do Yungalai and Balabatim give their money to? You know, people who, for the most part, don't have the education, um, aren't liquid, which means if you need to get money out in an emergency for an bar mitzvah or a wedding or somebody's sick, you can't get your money out. It's not, it's clearly, they're not transparent what they're investing in. The fees that they take are egregious, far more than Wall Street charges. Like, who has their head screwed on so backwards to do it? Why are they doing it? So, you know, I would expand it a little beyond just uh, our our crowd. Um, you know, affinity fraud is uh, present in any tight-knit community. So I think that's number one. It's a very tight-knit community. Everyone's looking at everyone. And uh, there are many examples of success of people who, who made a lot of money in, in, in investments in real estate in particular, but in general. So between the affinity and seeing it in front of your eyes, that's the beginning. And then uh, once you see people are being successful, making a lot of money quickly, you know, especially uh, during certain parts of the cycle, so then FOMO kicks in and, uh, you know, it, it, the, the bubble just explodes from there. I'd like to add that um, guys, have brought me the, guys have brought me investments, you know, in a favor. And I say, what's the deal? Well, after it's a 7% return, the syndicator gets uh, uh, 40%. I said, 40%. I said, if you go to you know any one of the sovereign funds, they give the, uh, the general partner 15%. I mean, you're paying almost 300% the fee, right? It's just and mm-hmm. and so such a lack of knowledge in investments. It's it's um and 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 then again, a lot of these guys are very successful. But the question is, are there are there investors successful? It's like somebody said, you know, I see all the investors have yachts, but do any of their clients have yachts? You know, so uh, walk me through the – I mean, you gave me the kits and emirates. Just unpack it a little bit. So, so you know, I think that – you know, I think there's two things. You know, first of all, a lot of the people who lost money were not necessarily small, unsophisticated people. You know, there were, there were some very large investors that got pulled in as well. So we see that this is a greater issue than just uh, people who generally are uh, not knowledgeable about the ways of the world. Um, you know, one thing I think that gets people very trick, trick, tricked up is uh, they, they, don't, they don't understand business cycles. They don't understand investment cycles. 
So, you know, if you look over historically, you know, if you look at, let's say, uh, you know, REIT or the S&P 500, you know, which have averaged, say, 10%, 12%, whatever time period you want to pick. But that's an average. If you look year by year by year, it would very rarely hits that 10%. There are years where it's down 20 or down 5. There are years that it's up 30, up 40. But these things tend to be cyclical. So people get very confused by the cycles. When the cycles are down, they tend to be very depressed. They don't want to hear about investments. When things are booming, year number one, year number two, year number three, caution starts being thrown to the wind. And uh, people are very, there's a recency bias, which is really tracked, um, you know, by behavioral economists. The brain is uh, tricked relatively easily. And especially when people all around you are coming in, they cashed out, they made a ton of money. It, It wasn't just the syndicators making money, if you look at, you know, during COVID and things were flying and people were making 50, 100% of the money, even despite the fees. So if you had the mazel to get in and out, you know, that very, very fortuitous time period, there were people making money enough for people to fall for it. So that was a big element is the, the confusion over the cycle, seeing their friends making money. And in general, it's the, it, it's the, the, the greed factor kicks in and the trust factor kicks in. You know, I myself, I, I was very vocal. Um, I wrote a weekly column a week with um, about personal finance for quite some time. I was very clear explaining that the average investor, in my view, is not doing enough due diligence to really understand the partner risk. I think it's very often underestimated. Um, how's your partner going to treat you? Um, the fact that the not all limited partners can necessarily um, pull together if something goes wrong, if there's a cash flow, some want this, some want that. So all of a sudden the deal starts falling apart. And also the cyclicality of real estate. You know, I think people are very, very, they struggle with that. And um, I think that leads to bad results. And let me, let me add on a few more things. You, you said partner risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's two partner risks. One is the honesty of the partner, right? Transparency mm-hmm. of the partner. But another issue is the, um, the knowledge of the partner. And I'll give you an example. We recently, here in the last year, sold a few buildings in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I heard this just last week from the guy who runs investments for us up in Lakewood. And he said, so there was one or two guys who were like the winning bidders. So one of the things you do is you do a, uh, an interview, a buyer interview. You want to make sure he's going to close. So they interview this guy. They want to know if he has the cash. So one of the questions you ask the guy is, what's your experience? Have you seen the buildings? So the guy mm-hmm. said, no, I never saw the buildings, which is if you're a seller, you don't want to find out that if he goes and sees it, he says, oh, I didn't notice it. So he just asked him out of curiosity, how do you buy a building? How do you put a big deposit down without seeing a building? So the guy mm-hmm. says, I bought 20 buildings in the last year and a half, and I never saw any of them. Yeah. And it's like it's like somebody saying, I paskined Maris the last year and a half, but I didn't look at any of them, right? right. It's just So the partner risk is both honesty of the partner and then there's confidence of the partner. And then I think there's a third thing, you know, there's, there's not necessarily dishonest, but what about if somebody just, it's your money. I really don't care what happens. Like if it goes up, I make a lot of money. If it goes down, I have no money in the deal. So that's not really dishonesty. That's just apathy. So you have three different types of partner risk, right? That you have. And then, and then cyclicality, you're right. I mean, it's like you can go to Atlantic City, win a few hands. At the end of the day, you're going to lose because, you know, when there's 48, 52 R's in the long run, you're going to, you're going to lose. But you, you sit there for the right amount of hands and you're going to say, wow, this guy's a genius. So it's like uh, yeah. it's flipping coins. You, you can flip heads four times in a row. Over the long term, it's going to be 50-50. So that's what you said is that cyclicality. So, so as, as, as far as, the, as, far as the, uh, the partner risk, as far as the, you know, the, the lack of 
dedication or concern that a general manager may have, that's something that I believe really got out of hand in this cycle. Um, other people's money was, was, was so extreme. You know, I, I tried to illustrate to some limited partners that the acquisition fees that also were, I believe were a relatively new phenomenon to the syndication structure where, you know, if you understood the math of how a 1% acquisition fee or 1.5% acquisition fee was being taken on the entire pot, but because of leverage that equaled like a 5% commission on every dollar being put into the deal. So I said, that's a real commission. That's, that's, you know, typically if your broker brings you a deal, you understand there's a Nagius there. It's not that he's a bad guy. He's, he's Nagius over. So you need an unbiased outside review, whether you can do it yourself or you hire somebody. People were ignoring that, and that created terrible conflicts of interest. I'll tell you, I'll tell you we sold another building to in one of these types of situations, and my guy called me up again. He said, you're not going to believe it. He said, the syndicator at the closing, walked out with a $4 million check. Wow. He, yeah. he, he created a bunch of fees, and then he did an internal flip from one entity he owned to another entity, raised the price, um, took at, and he, took, he, he, he put it under contract for, for 80 uh, sold mm-hmm. it back to another entity he owns for 100 syndicated out the entire 100 so He walked out with $4 million at the closing. I mean, right. and you have to be an expert. You have to be an expert. So his, so it's, it's, and, and the returns, 40%, 50%, 30%. Who gives those type of returns? So, so, so here's really the question. And what a lot of people don't know, if there was no place to invest money and it was a question of putting it in the bank and buying T-bills, and a guy said, look, you know, I, I can't live on, you know, I guess, you know, the 10-year T is trading at 370 today or 380. I can't make 3.7%. I'm not even outpacing inflation. So I, I have to go with some local guy who uh, there's no transparency, et cetera. But given that we have a very, very efficient stock market, that you want to buy real estate, you can go into the public markets. You can buy public REITs that every month publish, you know, statements that are audited statements by one of the big four accounting firms. They tell you where every nickel went, where every dollar went. And the returns of the REITs, right, and they don't take 20%, they take 0%, just the management fee, mm-hmm. right? Who, and they're liquid. If one day you wake right. up and you say, you know, I want to sell it, you don't have to bake toivis and mices and get discounted, you call, you call your broker in an hour. Why, if you can buy public, real quality REITs, would you be doing these schmade rays with, with all these, you know, you know, opaque situations? So, so there's two, there's two, there's two main answers. The, the main answer is that there's a tremendous aversion to the stock market and, and reach the volatility of the stock market, the volatility of REITs. People view that volatility as tremendously uh, risky, it's casino-like and gambling. And, and as much as I can explain to them that if you zoom out and look at this over a 10-year, 20-year time period, these things have been much safer than, than a random syndication if you don't know what you're doing, but that volatility really makes people nuts. Um, the other answer is there was a big push on the tax side. You know, people were being told that they can use the um, depreciation and bargain and and uh, and and the uh, bargain bargain depreciation uh, or bonus uh, depreciation to accelerate depreciation to to offset their other tax liabilities and that did um, for some people that really could change the dynamic drastically uh, much more favorably than a REIT. But the cyclicality, if you look so, at the return... So anyway, let, me, let me respond to both of those points, and you'll go back to cyclicality. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about volatility, okay? Mm-hmm. If, if the REIT index, what your particular REIT, whatever, it's a multifamily REIT, is down 10% or 20% today, 
Mm-hmm. If you bought, that means that they're saying that interest rates are causing multifamily properties right now to go down in value. The property mm-hmm. you have with the syndicator has gone down the same 20%. The difference is you don't know it because he hasn't marketed mm-hmm. it, whereas this gets priced every single day. Mm-hmm. So there's no difference in the volatility. It's just in one case, you, you're, you're wearing blinders, and in one case, your eyes are open. Like if, if, if right? So if, if multifamily 100%. goes down, right now, the, the world multifamily pricing is down from a year ago. Um, right. if, 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 if office buildings are down, they're down. If, you're, if you bought into an office building and the guy says everything's fine, it's not fine. Mm-hmm. Look at the, well, look at the, Look at the office index. That's what it is. You just don't know it because you right. haven't marketed it. So it, it's it's mm-hmm. it's not. And as far as the tax position, here's what I would say. I mean, I don't really understand. I mean, you can only offset real estate taxes if you're a real mm-hmm. estate tax professional against other gains. How many of the investors are real estate tax professionals get, get, according to the IRS, get classified as real estate professionals? You have to spend a minimum of, of 40 hours a week working in real estate. So whatever that, whatever kishka they're selling these investors. It's not true, and if they get if they get audited by the IRS, all those all those quote unquote losses are going to be recaptured, right? So I don't I don't really yeah, understand yeah. what what he's saying about taxes. My well, point is, is that my point is, is being marketed. I, this how it's being marketed. Why people? So so oh, I'm just saying as yes, yeah, so you just I think as 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 the educated voice in Lakewood, like it's really incumbent upon you to almost do classes and the Russian Shiva should say things about this because you can go lie and mortgage their houses. I cannot mm-hmm. think of a single benefit of investing in one of these private funds and I'm doing this for thirty mm-hmm. years. I cannot think of a single benefit. Right. So, so look, David. As much as I, I did say it, actually, and again, I, I like going on the record. You know, my column is, is available, you know, online. Uh, subsequently, so it's not like you know, everyone's a, a Monday morning quarterback. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been, I, I've been telling people. I told the average guy who called me. I said, look, stick to simple things. Either index funds, or if you want to buy a single family home that you manage yourself, or hire your brother-in-law to manage it for you, call up a vote. But uh, you, you probably don't have the wherewithal to understand the deal, to understand the operating agreement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people were being told different things, and uh, people get caught in by FOMO, et cetera. The, coming from you, I actually think it will make a tremendous impact because people tend to view the successful people in our community um, that have made money in real estate, and they don't understand that if you're not yourself a real estate professional, everything's different. The risk is much lower if you are running your own situation. Your tax situation is unique to yourself. Everything's very different, but people extrapolate and say, oh, that guy made money in real estate. So if I just touch real estate and look at real estate, I'm going to make a ton of money. This is not just a liquid issue, by the way. I'm yeah, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. So you touched so, upon something very important, index funds. And why do I say mm-hmm. that? Because Warren Buffett tells anybody who asks him, and he says, and I'll challenge. He did a challenge. I think, I don't know mm-hmm. if it was, he put a dollar value on it. He said, the best hedge funds in the world, Tiger Global, Citadel, he said, I challenged them over a 10-year period to beat the Dow index. That's just mm-hmm. the, the whole, right, the index of the stock market. And, and people pay these funds 20% to get into them, sometimes 30%. And he basically challenged everybody who's investing in hedge funds and said, mm-hmm. You're all, every one of you is wrong over a 10-year period. They're going to have a few good years, and they're going to give it all back. And he said, because you're giving away 20% plus management fees, no matter how good they are, they're not going to beat 
the market by 23%, which is what you're giving away in advance. Right? In other words, if you give a dollar, you're really only investing in a way with 67 cents after all the fees. He said the 67 cents will never beat the dollar in the market. Right. And and um, and I think you could Google the story, and I think there's one fund that he was wrong on. I'm not sure. There could have been nobody. There were 100,000 funds that tried. One fund, maybe. Right. Could you explain right. to the oil what an index fund is? Sure, sure. An index fund is a fund that rather than try to outguess all the other professional investors, they're able to just combine and give you the average return of all the other investors. So they just buy a sliver instead of trying to guess which of the top five, which of the which company out of the five thousand public companies in the country will outperform the other. They just buy a sliver of all of them. And historically, they've outperformed the vast majority of professional investors. It's very very high. In the long term, it's like they, the, the the index funds in each category can be beat as much as ninety to ninety five percent of the professionally managed funds at a very low cost, very high transparency, very tax efficient, and they're fantastic. I, I strongly recommend them uh, to, to all investors, frankly. You know, it's interesting, CalPERS, which is one of the largest investors in the world, you know, they had time periods where they just threw in the towel and said, look, we're paying, you're talking about, you know, they manage a couple hundred billion dollars, and they said, all these consultants and all everything, bottom line, like 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 double, you just ran the numbers. If we're paying out 20, 30% of profit, it's not, we're not coming out ahead. We're just adding a lot of complexity, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, work, and not better returns. So look, Warren Buffett, it's a little bit ironic, by the way, because Warren Buffett himself is a tremendous active investor, but he's calling Wall Street's bluff and saying, look, you guys are just not as good as me. It's as simple as that. I'm a rarity. But he also and, told uh, his family after he passes away, put the money sure. in an index fund. And now here's, here's in other words, I want to add on to what I always said about an index fund. An index fund is, let's say, let's say they'll buy the Dow 500. So they buy it exactly weighed. You know, so if, if, let's say, Microsoft of it is, you know, a half a percent, so that in their basket, Microsoft will be a half a percent of all your money. So you get whatever stock share you buy, you're buying an exact mirror of the of the Dow 500. Now, there is some chachma to, to index funds. It's not totally blind because the way index funds work, let's say you're, you're buying the Dow 500. The Dow 500 on a monthly basis throws out... No, just to clarify, I, I believe you mean the S&P 500. S&P 500, correct. The S&P 500 on a continual basis keeps on throwing out uh, the lousy companies. In other words, if your company, they take the best of the of the 5,000, just numerically, if the ones that grew the most, that have the biggest market share, the minute your market share shrinks according to your peers, they throw you out and they put in the company that has a bigger market share. Not because it's Seichel, because they're looking for the largest companies. But inevitably, if they're always casting out the companies that are shrinking, that really means they're casting out the ones that are weakening. And this is done on a – so the, the S&P 500 changes on a weekly, monthly, and annually level as they keep on throw out, with the, out with the weaker ones, only in with the, pot, the ones that are growing. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, to a certain extent, it's blind, but to a certain extent, it's like, if a younger man wants to buy the S&P 500, and I think an index that has the S&P 500 charges like – what do they charge? Like uh, if you buy a dollar, they charge you like a, a tenth of a penny or something, a tiny amount, right? Yeah. Ten yeah. basis yeah. points, yeah. right? Literally, you can get it for free. So that's for free. Has, has a Free version, believe it or so, not. so tell the younger liar or whoever's listening, they want to invest. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if, unless I'm mistaken, if you bought the S&P 500 in the year 2000 and you're holding it till today, it's 23 years, I think it went up 400%. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, not a little... It's, it's tremendous. 
It's so, just not so a small brother, amount. I, brother, I have a funny anecdote for you. You know, I, 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 you know, I do, I do consulting for some larger investors, and larger investors can, if they have the right team in place, you know, they can uh, perhaps approach investing differently and find the winners uh, sometimes. You know, if they have a good team. So this this uh, this uh, firm, um, they or this investor, they did a a certain syndication deal that they picked and they liked the brand name brand name uh, brand name uh, investor. This and that. In the end, it's it they're still battling to try to get their money out. You're talking about it's like 15 years later. So I simply I just wanted to illustrate to them that even if they get their equity out, I said if they put that million dollars into the S and P 500 that year, it's up 4x over the past. 15 years, it's 4x. Okay, so don't think if the guy gives you back your million dollars, you're whole. You're not whole. You're out $3 million. Opportunity cost is a real cost. So for sure, if you're losing money, you actually, if your equity is down, the real investors hate losing money. You know, I think the amateurs, one of the biggest mistakes I believe people make is they do a shorthand version of the most important equation of investing is they say risk equals reward or more risk, more reward. And that is such a, a, a misapplied piece of information because it's not true. The real smart investors are always looking for the edge. So, you know, Warren Buffett says risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. The opposite. Warren Buffett is trying to stay within his competence level and find an asset that he, he has confidence. There's almost no chance of getting a wipeout and a very high chance of having great returns. But people, so, again, people don't have the, have the patience to really, they have to educate themselves at least to a basic level to be an educated consumer to know who to trust and how, and how to go about it. It's not that much work to do the basics. But a lot of people they get uh, seduced by the uh, you know the the the, the short uh, the short term uh, 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 booms that they're seeing around them they jump in. And how how would somebody buy uh, a fidelity? If somebody's listening, they said, you know what, I'm not investing it with this guy and not with that guy. I don't want to be stuck in a in a, in a roach motel for the next 15 years. Mm-hmm. I want to buy the index. I can get out of it anytime I want. I'm not going to check it daily. I'm not going to check it monthly. I know that over 23 period went up 400%. I can assume that the next 23-year period is going to go up another 400%. How would mm-hmm. they buy it? How do they buy it? It's it, it, it's really it's self-serve today. It's extremely easy. You go to Vanguard's, uh, you go to Vanguard site, the Fidelity Investment site, you open an account, you literally can do it in 10 minutes, and uh, each one has, has uh, the S&P 500. They have the total stock market index fund, which is a little bit broader, but the same concept. And um, it's really simple. You know, frankly, you know, these companies are happy to, to have you as customers. You call the 800 number and say, I heard the, on the, the headlines podcast that I should be investing in S&P 500 index fund and uh, walk me through. If, you know, they, they won't actually pick the investments for you because for that you need to be a licensed advisor. But if you just say, help me make sure that I'm buying the stop, S&P 500 index fund, Literally, you're talking about a 10-minute a phone call. So you call up either Vanguard or Fidelity, or you go online and you say, I want to buy the S&P 500. Now, what happens when the guy on the phone tries to talk you into buying individual stocks because he makes a big commission on that? What do you say? So uh, typically, that, I, I, that will not happen in that blatant of fashion because, again, our licensing is... But, I, so but say, I would just I say, I would just say, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it with my friends, and I don't want to do it with you either. I want the S&P 500, right? You got you to stick to your guns. You know, I, 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 will, I will say uh, there the, the is, you know, just from my financial advisor friends, there are things beyond... When it comes to different tax savings accounts, it could get a little bit confusing whether you should choose a traditional IRA, wealth IRA, you have an inherited IRA, um, opening up a 401k, et cetera, et cetera. 
So sometimes there is room for a financial advisor, but even over there, you're alluding to a very big challenge in the industry, which is this tremendous amount of salesmanship, tremendous amount of fees. undisclosed conflict of interest, tremendous amount of fees, and, and the fees really do stack it against you. If you, you know, one, one thing also that I think investors make a big mistake, Rebdavid, uh, is people are used to, the more I pay, the more I get, right? If I want the best surgeon, I got to be prepared to pay, to pay the top dollar. If I want the best car, have to be prepared to pay top dollar. So people assume if the guy's charging me two and twenty, yeah. he's taking a huge fee. Yeah. They assume you're getting more. Yeah. But the difference is, is that the surgeon is his job is to give you a great surgery and get get you a great result. The money is a secondary outside factor. Whereas in investments, the money it takes is directly opposing the amount of money that the limited partner is going to get. But again, there's a lot of these mental biases that if you don't take the time to self-educate, at least on a basic level, it's very easy to get tripped up. Kabeli, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Take care, Carlton. Bye-bye.